and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all of the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. My name is David Ward and coming up this month, busy bodies, opera survival and the race to play Meghan Markle. We also have an exclusive interview with the music director of Scottish opera, Stuart Stratford. Now, apologies in advance to our international listeners. We have a lineup of strong regional accents this month. Apologies. I'm joined Apologies. in Why? the Chapel of M studio <laughs> by Helen Harrison. Hello, Helen. Hi, I'm Helen. I'm proudly from Lancashire. I'm from the north and have no issue with regional accents. <laughs> and on Skype, rather excitingly, for the first time, it's Ben Crick. Hello, Ben. Hello, I'm from the north and I'm parochial enough to be proud that I'm not from Lancashire. <gasps> I'm, from, I'm from Yorkshire. And that will be the last Lancashire-Yorkshire fight we have no, today. Well. <laughs> Honest. Let's kick off our first news story of 2020. Uh, well, we discussed his first operatic effort, Nebuchadnezzar, last month. And in between recording our last pod and releasing it, Kanye West announced his second opera. Mary premiered at the Miami Marine Stadium in early December. Um, now, the Miami Marine Stadium is a bit like Bregenz, um, but with kind of more speedboats. Right. Um, and everyone kind of... <laughs> painted head to toe in silver paint um so it told the uh the kind of the the story of the nativity but from mary's perspective uh, so it launched at the miami marine stadium uh, and then it went to the lincoln center just before christmas and sadly he hasn't announced any more operas yet um now i said last month i love uh kanye west doing an opera and i just love that this is like the good old days you know just kind of bash out on a couple of operas a month you know none of this five-year <laughs> gestation period bish bash bosh no. And none of this writing fresh music, just regurgitating yeah. music you've done before. That seems quite key. Precisely. Rescore. Yeah, re- I quite like... I did look at the video. It's worth a look. Uh, it kind of just looked like they stood in very shiny costumes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that was kind of it. It was quite intriguing. I have to say, I'm, I don't really know. I'm going to look like a real classical music annoying person. Uh, Kanye yeah. West isn't one that, you know, I'm down with it. I know about um, who the big is in pop today. So I'm going to... Oh, no, I'm not. Thanks for that, David. No, I'm beyond that. Uh, You know, um, what's his name? Ed Sheeran, all Mm. that. You know, and I actually like a bit of dance and techno, but I've got to admit, I know Kanye West's been around a bit and everyone is all over him, Um, but I don't know much about him. I do know he's married to um, Kim Kardashian. Um, I have to admit, I don't watch that a lot either. But, you know, it's, it's great that he's badging it as opera. I do like the fact it's quick. You know, get it, yeah, get it, ri- Under yeah, an hour yeah, performance as well, yeah, and and it's yeah. it's got to be good whether it's opera, but I always think it's good to do data because if if we're gonna if opera's gonna survive and be relevant, it does need to have things that are gonna happen on the edges to take the art form forward. Yeah, it does, right? But uh, at what <laughs> point is it not opera? Or what what is an opera? Is an opera <laughs> anything on a stage? That tells a bit of a story and has a bit of music in it. Is, is, is well, that well, opera? that see that is yeah. a great. Well, question back then. You know, yeah, we're yeah. on the classic one. What's the difference between music theatre and opera? Music oh. theatre's got an audience. <laughs> <laughs> it's got nice tunes. Music theatre is. It, you know, does it? You know, nowadays does it matter? If it's amplified. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to get to a stage where we're doing everything we can to make opera survive, help the 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 industry survive, help the art form survive but transform it to a point where it's barely recognisable to what we think opera is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's that's my worry, that people... I, I refuse to believe anyone's gone to see that and said, what I need to do now is go see Tosca. I refuse to believe that it's, it's, a, it's a route into the canon, a route into the art form. It's a, 
it's a it's a, perhaps a freak show's too unkind. I mean, it's I, an anomaly. Yeah. I guess the interesting thing about it is, if you look at all I do know about Kanye West, he's got a track record of using lots of different music. He's got like quite a lot of orchestral stuff. So it's kind of his calling card that he calls on different genres and vibes of music to create his own his own sort of style. So in a way for him, he's just, I guess, cherry picking other things that he's heard. And, you know, I, I did read around and have a look. And in some senses, you know, if you think about opera in its like, raw thing being a, a big old massive spectacle of music and um something that's been written anew that isn't a pop band just getting up and singing ballads or whatever mm. and then maybe it is i don't know yeah I, I think for me whether whether you think it's an i don't mean you ben i mean uh, the world thinks it's <laughs> yeah, an, opera, world. an opera or not <laughs> anything we can do yeah. to, to 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 make the word opera a bit less kind of like stuffy. terrifying and stuffy yeah, totally. is, is great so look yeah. whatever it's kind of musical merits if he wants to call it an opera and that means that people I, I would, see it then yeah. I think that's cool. I was kind of thinking Miami must have been quite warmish I'm guessing in December um, I'd, I'd love to see them do it yeah. on like the river like on the, the tide or something <laughs> something like that <laughs> you know they'd have to get like a few more bobble hats on you know thermal vests yeah, I don't know how many speedboats yeah. you have on the, I think I think he arrived on speedboat didn't he oh right. a bit like the opening of the 2012 Olympics yes yes precisely <laughs> yeah. just like that um, you, you can watch the performance on YouTube on an unofficial recording that someone took at the event which of course I don't condone but if you search Kanye West and Mary you will find it um so kind of talking about opera repertoire more broadly, always interesting, the website BarkTrack have released their stats for 2019, uh, covering areas including the most popular operas put on over the past 12 months, the busiest conductors and busiest singers. Uh, now some encouraging headlines here, 13 of the 50 most popular contemporary composers are women, that's a sharp increase on recent years, and 8 of the top 50 busiest conductors were women, so... Um, we're not up to fifty uh, percent yet, but we're a it's a lot higher than it than it yep. was. Um, but I must say that these are stats for classical music in general, not just opera. I think if you looked at opera, you'd find um, that the women were not, were not quite as well yep. represented. Uh, there was also a fall in the percentage of operas being performed by one of the big three: Verdi, Mozart, and Puccini, which suggests a bit more variety in the repertoire. Mm. Um, although staggeringly, still thirty percent of all yes. operas are They're either by Verdi, <laughs> Mozart, <laughs> or Puccini. The entire repertoire is three people, which makes me. <laughs> sad um ben are these statistics um just simply interesting or, or can we learn anything from these i think the predominant i, th I think it's interesting so it's, it's always interesting and there is change on the fringe but we saw from the list of the 10 most performed operas mm. it's the 10 we'd guess isn't it it's yeah. still the, the absolute top end carmen yeah. figaro tosca butterfly Fig yeah that there, there is fringe change around the industry but but what's still dominates the industries the behemoths be it the operas yeah. be it the composers be it the conductors be it the performers there's there's still the stars dead or alive that people are flocking to and i think we've said probably said this before but you can see that in all the programs for the major houses there'll be the big you know there's the big bohem wasn't there at uh, upper north and then obviously that on the other side you have the greek passion so i mean i thought the greek passion was brilliant by the way it really disturbed me that they were there looking at the same issues and we thought we'd said goodbye to some of that sadness so a bit of an aside there but nah, again yeah. it just shows that you know you've got to have a balanced program in order to sort of almost fund the other areas and then hopefully there will be slowly a more of an interest in those things but we've said this before I think yeah and and I'm also I'm not particularly worried that 
great works still proliferate because mm. people they, they talk about what's important about being human and that doesn't change no. people are always going to want to see mona lisa people are always yeah. going to read the classic novels people these works talk about what is human and eternal in all of us and it's always relevant and if some somebody of genius be it 200 years ago or two years ago have summed that experience up in sound people are never going to tire of it and we shouldn't be surprised that the dynamics in Tosca, it's, good, yeah. it's, it's hashtag me too, isn't it? It's like all the, all the, yeah. in humanity. Exactly. So this should be always relevant. Yeah, it, it is interesting. But I mean, you, you do raise a point there, you know, if we were to look at the, the top 10 books of the year, the top 10, mm. even, you know, plays or, or, or even musicals yeah. of, of the year, you know, I mean, we're, we're they not, would be current, wouldn't they? they yeah. They'd be current and they'd be, they'd be changing. Um, so I, I, I do agree, Ben, that look, we, you know, we shouldn't be sort of campaigning suddenly that all of those top 10 just, just disappear. But um, it's just appreciating that opera is, is yeah, a very different Beast, industry. isn't it? Yeah. And, I think um, this is going to become relevant in a conversation we're going to have in a minute about, about racism in opera and how and how opera sort of like it's it's not always the most up to date thing and the the cultural norms of when it were written may differ from what we expect now but there's there's still something eternal about it and i think we should celebrate that as much as as look to just get new stuff all the time it's an and isn't it i think is what we're saying not an or you want to do and and as long as there is some variety in there i think that's i think that's what we want uh, turning our attention away from the international and to the UK scene, um, we've had the news this week that after 31 years, Michael Volpe is leaving his role as General Director of Opera Holland Park at the end of this season. Uh, Michael, alongside the long-standing Director of Opera James Clutton, was instrumental in cementing Holland Park as one of the country's foremost houses, and undoubtedly he'll be a big loss for the company. But congratulations to Michael for his time there, and all the best with his future endeavours. Before he leaves, however, he and James Clutton will be hosting a really interesting event on the 5th of February, discussing the current state of opera criticism. Uh, The event is called Critics Question Time, and you can book tickets online from the Holland Park website. Uh, This is something we've discussed on the pod in recent months, the importance, uh, or arguably the lack of importance, of, of critics nowadays um, at this event stating their case for relevance will be uh, Hugh Canning, Rupert Christensen Neil Fisher, Erica Giel and John Allison, all familiar names Helen, what kind of importance do you kind of put on on critics whether it's um, of, of uh, your own performances, you don't have to um, talk about any any, um, <laughs> any criticisms or, or just in general when you're trying to sort of get a sense of a new production or a new work, I mean how much do you put on, on what these people say? Absolutely I knew he was going to come to me then first, Ben. I'm just playing for no, time while I think. So, so my, well, my view is, um, I, I think they've got a role, um, but I think the, the role is changing because of, again, the way that so many people can immediately have a voice to access so many people via social media. In terms of a, of a review, it's interesting being a conductor because obviously, um, I'm be interesting to get Ben to on this, we are so part of a production and we see all of it, but often the music in an opera can almost seem like a, an add-on in, in terms of where it can come. Um, the other thing that I'm always conscious of is um, I'm always very conscious that anybody who's performing at whatever level, and particularly singers even more than, say, the pit orchestra or, or instrumentalists, you are really putting yourself out there. And I'll be honest, no one ever musically, in my experience, goes on stage 
wanting to do a bad job. Now, we, we may know of in our, in our lives some people who may not have prepared properly and that might be a contributing factor. But in general, you know, I, I, I always like to find the, the positive things rather than be a negative person, but that's probably my personality type. So I'd, I'd always like to find the positives um, rather than a, a negative, but that's kind of how I kind of vibe, really. Yeah, I, th- I think that, that's... And really it's cool. almost respecting the fact that, especially for a singer, I just think, especially in opera, um, they've got to memorise the whole role, they've got to sing it really well, they've got to be aware of the orchestra, they've got to be aware of this, the the people, they've got to be standing in the right place at the spot, Um They've got to just deal with the vocal technique. They'll have to deal with things that happen maybe in the orchestra that they, they're just taking them unawares. You know, life performance as well. Things happen and often you, you, you're in the moment of trying to make that performance work when things happen because it's live. Yeah, it, it, it is, isn't it? And what, what that critic comments on is a snapshot in time. Yeah. If you're yeah. doing that opera ten times, mm. right, that happened that night. Now, I've more time for critics if they tell me, right, they're doing the Flying Dutchman and there's no boat and they've set it in space. And and this sort of like great sort of conceptual ideas, I'm happy to hear that. That's, that's, just, because, a, that's just a narrative account, though, isn't it? Is, you know, that... Yeah. But if I hear that they're doing the Flying Dutchman and there isn't a boat, I don't want to waste my time going to see it. So I quite, <laughs> like, I, I quite like it when they give me a heads up. if it's About the production, about, yeah. Because that's not changing. That's going to be a constant. That's their mm. vision, good, bad or indifferent. Yeah. But when they just tell me that something happened on that night in that singer's performance, there's no guarantee that that's going to happen the next night. There's no guarantee that that happened the night before. And I question making a judgment value on whether you're going to go see something on that. I I that totally agree with that, yeah. yeah. Mm. And I think a big part of, of this critic's question time is going to be what is the, the role of a professional critic, but mm. uh, as well, and another subject that we've talked about and has come up again this month is, is, the, is the role of the, uh, what should we say, the, the non-professional critic. Who gets to kind of talk about these things um i think particularly this this month the singer jennifer um johnston uh, tweeted mm. um specialist classical music critics are proper journalists whose criticism we may not like but we grudgingly accept because they write well with education and experience self-appointed bloggers who publish criticism with no such background are a plague on our houses um and she said discuss and people certainly did discuss so much so that jennifer has since taken down her twitter account um, it's so- a mixed bag isn't it it's like some people on twitter probably do know what they're talking about perhaps they're singers performers in their own right but some of them are just absolute haven't got a clue and just are, are, are talking nonsense and everyone's voice has the same volume because we're all out there doing it but, so, but that's the interesting thing yeah. this whole there has been the constant um suspicion of of experts haven't there that's that we've seen happening in our kind of social yeah. daily discourse I don't want to get into politics too much. Um, and, you know, what I would say is I think experts need to be listened to, but people who, on the flip side, I think it's really good if somebody who isn't particularly, uh, you know, hasn't got a music degree, hasn't been raised in music, goes to the opera house, opera and says, oh, that's a fantastic night, I was in tears. It might not be critical, but I think in, in where we are now, we want people to respond to the emotion and the... the you know, we want them to be moved by what they see and hear. And I think being able to express that is valuable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm comfortable with people telling me what they thought of it. But like, you go on YouTube, I'm watching Kaufman sing Reconditor Armonia from Tosca. 
on um, YouTube. And in the comments underneath, there's people, somebody said, ugly, ugly throat singing. I, I, know what well, Ben, I'm, do you know what? I'm so glad. <laughs> I, I'm just so glad because I, I like you, you, you're obviously doing research and you hear these who are the world's yeah. best artists. And then some somebody's just put something underneath. Yeah. And I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's almost bad manners, if yes. I can be yeah. honest. I mean, I, yeah. I don't think there's any need for, for for nastiness, and I think I think I completely agree with you, Helen. That when it's when it's people that that aren't trained or whatnot, like like myself, I will try, and sometimes I might do this, and I apologise, but I will try not to comment on people's uh, singing technique or whatnot because I do not know anything about it. I can mm. tell you if I've loved a performance, if I thought it yeah. was emotionally yeah. resonant and all those sorts of things, but I'm not going to sit there and go ugly throat singing because I, I mean I don't I don't really know <laughs> yeah. what that means. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it's, it means nothing. <laughs> Well, actually, I think I think actually that may, might be Chinese opera because I think there is a. Um, but I'm getting totally off piece yeah, now. Yeah, I think you are right. Yeah, there is a certain <laughs> stuff. Yeah, that's yes. it. Thanks, Ben. That, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, trust me, Kaufman isn't doing that. Exactly. That is totally. Yeah, they need yeah. to go. Yeah. Yeah, but but for me, you know, I, I've said it, I say it all the time, and that's why we're here. We need to. We should broaden who can talk about it. Yes, if you don't know anything about singing, don't start pretending you know about technique, yeah. but as many people as possible to give their honest opinions on the impact something has had, whether they liked it or not, yeah. is, is really important. And we'll talk about this a bit more a bit mm. later when we talk about the festival of Brexit. Hold it, Ben. We'll talk about <laughs> it later. Oh, I'm good at this. Give me a minute. Later. Yeah. Yeah. Before we move on to that... Um, Talking about critics, we've had a, an interesting article uh, the last few days from The Telegraph's Rupert Christensen, um, written an article called Can Opera Survive Outside London, uh, in which he interviewed Richard Mantle from Opera North, Aidan Lang from Welsh National Opera, and Jane Eve Strawton from English Touring Opera. Um, now, Helen and Ben, we all live far outside of London. Um, yeah. Do you think yeah. opera is surviving? I do. Yeah. yeah, demonstrably yes. There are opera companies outside London that are surviving or well attended people are going to it there isn't the density of population you have in london Correct. so perhaps not as many people are going to go see it simply on the geography of where we are but it absolutely can mm. yeah and i think i think as well for opera outside there i think as as this the article discusses and obviously the, the people who are interviewed clearly it there's yet again another set of challenges just with the funding i mean it's interesting they mentioned blackpool that i live very near to an english touring opera um do tour to the grand theater and i know working with the grand in other capacities that the grand are really keen to support more opera more classical music but again everybody's having to work very hard to achieve that so what i'm saying is there is often an appetite but again it comes down to this issue around um, in London, I know there's a, a you know the general funding and donors is difficult in London, but as soon as you're out of London, it is it is even more difficult. I was talking to someone recently where they were trying to raise money for a sort of refurb, and based on their experience working sort of more down south, they they thought that they'd get a lot more buy-in from local companies in terms of someone standing up and being the kind of major donor. It just didn't happen. Um, no. And I think that's the, the challenge in the north. And again, I have to be. I think a lot about this, and I do a lot of work in this area. And I passion, you know, I want it. I want us to have the quality of opportunity. But these are the things around infrastructure and venues that sometimes just don't exist here in the north. That 
immediately create practical problems of setting scenery, accommodating an orchestra. Mm. Um, I, I think the, the key question here is that, yes, opera will literally survive outside of London, but I suppose it's what do we... A, a term by the word survival, yeah. mm. and, and I think I think that the thread in this article from from Richard Aiden and and Jane, which you you may disagree with, is that yes, opera may exist, but actually there's a lot of pressure on, and these are three fairly well funded companies. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure on them to do a lot of work outside of the main stage, which is very good work. Um, but in terms of the the kind of the focus on the 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 kind of the art form on the stage, the opera in, in a way is not surviving and flourishing artistically in the way that they would like to see it no but also don't feel the slight london arrogance about this it's as if the implication is that people don't value or like opera up in up outside london so oh we need to fund it we need to prop it up whereas what what covent garden's wondering what to do with all its excess profits making from ticket sales Opera is every bit as propped up in London uh, yeah. as it is anywhere else in the country. Mm. Let's not delude ourselves that it's making ends meet in London and nowhere else. Exactly. It's propped up in London like mm. it is everywhere else. I mean, I think the other thing that, that this article made me think about was that, uh, yes, you know, Opera North and, and Welsh National Opera aren't, aren't sitting on gold mines, no. but they are very well funded organizations yes. they're, they're some of the biggest funded organizations in the country is actually in terms of talking about survival of opera outside of london more about supporting as you said helen a wider infrastructure rather than just concerning ourselves with upper north and welsh national opera actually is survival of the form much more about trying to invest in more of a, a, a grassroots well you you back down and i know ben talked about this you back down to fundamentally for me all music really we need to make sure there's equality of access to quality music provision from school age for all because that's where the basic exposure to the, the joy of all music happens so if we if we get that right we've got a choice but by the time we get to this point it's too late absolutely that's that that's the thing and perhaps there is more access in london to high quality art easier at a lower level well, all the big companies are there i think i think one of the really interesting things about um london is obviously cause it's got so many um you know national organizations operating there um of, of all kinds and obviously it's got all the build you know all the prestigious venues all of those companies prestigious venues they will all have a remit for working with with young people schools community so to a certain degree, there's so many more companies um, offering um, support. I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, but straight away, if we look up here, we've got Manchester, we've got Leeds, and then there's really a big gap between here and Newcastle yeah. in terms of professional uh, companies with that level of expertise as well. Mm. And, you know, and obviously, again, the other issue is, um, to a certain degree, we will... We've got a lot of singers who probably have lived in the north, but then work will demand that sometimes they've had to go to London. You, you know, there's a hot, the, there's nothing new in what I'm saying, but I think in London, there's so much. It's the density issue, mm. I think. And, and I think what, uh, density is quite right. I think one thing that is often overlooked, and and I must do some some stats on this, is that yes, it's all very good saying that Opera North is here and it serves the whole of the north and it goes to Newcastle, but maybe they do. Um, 15 shows a year in Newcastle. ETO mm -hmm. goes to Durham maybe three days a year, and then there's maybe some odd little smaller performances. So are we saying we're happy with a, a big city, of the northeast of England, having 25 to 30 professional 
Knights of Old Pro a year. Is that what we mean by, you know, providing for a massive geographical region? Um, yeah, I mean, is that, the the argument is is that sufficient? Does, yeah. does yeah. that cater for everyone that wants to watch opera in the yeah. northeast? And, and even here I, in Leeds, you know, know. Op- Opera North are obviously based here, but the amount of actual nights of of opera performances here in Leeds, um, I don't know. We'll have to do the stats, but I yeah. guess it's maybe at most sixty, maybe fifty. Yeah, but in my experience, they're rarely sold out. There's often quite good houses, but those performances we have in Leeds, you can usually get a ticket. Hmm. So perhaps that is the demand. Perhaps that actually is sufficient. And we might have hit a ceiling. But Yeah, but then, yeah. interesting if you then flip that round to Manchester and look at the amount of opera provision in Manchester. It's and then, yeah. And again, a coin of phrase I used heard the other day is you've almost got, you've got the North, which basically I was joking the other day that, you know, when I went to university, um, for some people being where they were, the furthest North they'd ever been was Watford Gap. But then yeah. there's the north, but actually there's the south north, which is almost along the M62 Manchester Leeds, and then you've got the north north. And if you look at provision above that, it's it kind of drops off even more steeply. Now I know there's issues of you know rural Cumbria, rural Yorkshire, but then obviously you've got that whole mass of Newcastle, Durham down into some of the towns of North Yorkshire. But I'm sure you know I'm not I don't come from Yorkshire, so I don't know. It yeah, and, and we talk about the north a lot, but you know there are the areas of the, the country, north, like, north. what the north, yeah. north, or, or even like the southwest. That's a great point, um, actually. Yeah, you know, Again. and actually the provision there, it's not, it's not the north, but in terms of can opera survive outside of London? Um, what we mustn't get too bogged down in is what's what's not what's geographically north, but actually mm. what's outside of London, a different direction. Well, yeah. I mean, there was a phrase in the article, "the left behind." You know, I, I kind of. I know why it says that, you know, where they're left behind areas, but, you know, part of me really, I don't, I don't want to be feeling that I'm in the left behind area. <laughs> yeah. I, I completely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. But yeah, and again, thinking about the Southwest, I was talking to someone earlier who's um, in Spain for, for a couple of months and she, she lives in Devon and we're talking about having a meeting in London and she said it's quicker and cheaper for her to come from Spain to yeah. a meeting in London oh, than don't. it is for her to, right. for I, her to go from Devon. I, I had to travel yeah. to London uh, recently and I had to be back in Lancashire. There was nowhere. It's, it was too close to a, something important to get a dep in for the whole thing. And it was a ridiculous amount of money from Preston to London. Now, the, yeah. these are the real inequalities. So if you're a northern singer wanting an audition to go to London, if you live in London, yeah, it will cost you money, but fine, you're there. The, these are all the what I call hidden inequalities. But I, I know we're here to talk about opera, but these are driving so many of our social inequalities. Yeah, they the are. In, infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. And we care about opera. We love opera as three, but opera's not the battleground. There's much no. more significant north-south, south-west divides and where I, the country's yeah. resources are, are too London-centric. yeah. We will leave that for now, but I think this this issue of opera outside of London, and I say not just the north, but the southwest, Wales, Scotland yep. as well, is definitely something we will return to later. Now, following on from their decision last year to recruit four singers from BAME backgrounds to their chorus, English National Opera are to recruit five string players from BAME communities to their orchestra. Um, now, you may recall, eagle-eared listeners, that we announced in the last pod that we're going to be going up to two episodes a month from January. And at the end of this month, we're going to have a special pod all about diversity in opera with some very special guests. Um, so we're not going to dwell on this subject too much, um, but look out for that special episode dropping in a few weeks' time.
Now, we don't talk, Helen, much about the makeup of orchestras, but I was looking the other day, and, and black and minority, I think, people make up 1.7% of UK orchestras. It's a kind of a bit of a, a hidden topic that we we don't That's really cool. think no. about because we don't see them <laughs> all, all the time, especially if, yeah. if, you know, if they're in pits. Is this kind of a, a, a problem that you come across with all the orchestral work that you do? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking myself, it, it is. And again, it, it comes right back down to the grassroots of who's learning the instruments and I, I can speak you know I do quite a lot of education work and I think we need to do a much better job of reaching everybody because when I'm just thinking about as we go through the youth orchestra and who I see in the youth orchestra it's, it's just not happening no it isn't is it youth orchestras are white yeah yeah they are broadly yeah, yeah. so I mean again we, we you know we've said it we've said it before we won't rehash it but I'm you know, a, a big fan of these sort of proactive recruitment campaigns and, and whatnot. I think, you know, it's kind of the way it, it has to yeah, be cause done. Yeah, because nothing's changing. We can't just sit back passively and think it's going to happen. It, it, unless, it, yeah, yeah, unless they expect it to happen and go, oh, there's no, there's no BAME artists in the London Symphony Orchestra. Mm. That That's not where the change needs to happen. It needs, it's way, way, way down the pyramid Absolutely. where the change needs to happen. Mm. Yeah, and again, it's reflected back to that... that um, Rupert Christensen asked about opera outside outside of London. The Richard Mantle talks in there about, you know, sort of trying to do some kind of proactive measures, but but again, they find time and time again that it's very difficult at that at that pool. And if you've only got a couple yeah. of people that you can you can recruit and you offer them, and you know they're not able yeah. to do it or whatnot, then it's it, it it is difficult. So I think these these efforts to really proactively go out to a certain community of people to increase the representation. Uh, it's kind of yeah. the nuclear option yeah. that we've kind of got to, we've, we've got to go there. There's nothing more patronising. Nobody in the world would want to get a job singing at Opera North that they're not up to simply because of the colour of their skin. And unless we do the training way down the bottom that's, of the pyramid, yeah. that's all that's open to us. And, and nobody mm. in the world would want that. It's patronising. Yeah. So let's let's open the opportunity, open equality of opportunity, yeah, which absolutely. will ultimately result in equality of outcome. But it's a long, it's a long job. It's yeah. decades. Talking about kind of, I don't know what to call it, reverse representation. Um, we keep coming onto these uh, examples of, of blacking up still being a thing in opera. I, I was astounded to see it. The, I was, the, I, yeah. the Vienna I, I, stats I, I last saw that. I, 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 I just was flabbergasted. It, it was proper black and white minstrels, wasn't uh, it? It was appalling. It was I know. Like, what? Shocking. I know. Like, in this day and age. And you think of a, a major house like that. I mean, you know, um, and we were not going to talk about Plasto Domingo this month but it there, there's yeah. a there's a slight cultural thing where again we've seen you know him warmly welcomed um on 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 mainland uh, Europe yeah. uh, over the past couple of weeks massive stand innovations in in Vienna um or Salzburg but Austria uh, yeah. and and and, but, and and Germany cuz let's be clear blow out on trumpet for a second there is no way any British company had put that monastatos on the stage no there's no, no way it would happen here it, it just wouldn't so I think we are perhaps a little, perhaps behind where the curve should be, but we're certainly ahead of the curve in, in regards in to parts mainland of, Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In parts, yeah. Mm. yeah. And related to this, you know, I was I was pleased to see an article from Catherine Hugh in the New York Times uh, arguing that that rather than making changes to some of the problematic operas we talked about before, such as Butterfly mm. or Turandot, you know, we should perform them as they were written and kind of create a discussion around them. almost like confront it head confront on. Confront it, you know. Yeah. That's what I've. Yeah. argued for, yeah. for for a long time so naturally i was delighted to see <laughs> to see this this article um but yeah i mean I don't, I don't think that means that if monastos originally was blacked up we should we should do that but there are there are yeah. things around you know that even the racism and things in the magic flute yeah rather than yeah. change it around let's confront it 
and let's actually let's, use all people's to, um, reactions to that as an audience member as a way to kind of have a the issues. proper discussion and yeah. issue. Yeah, because yeah. Monostatos is is an unequivocal racist character. Yeah, Mozart makes him black because he's evil. Let's be, let, let's yeah. be clear. That, that's what it is. Um, and but this is written at a time when slavery is still happening. We're 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 taking a work from that sort of era, and of course it's totally unacceptable now. But but so many things about the 18th century are Unex- totally unacceptable now. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So let's address that. I thought it was interesting the uh, the magic flute that was on over Christmas oh, from yes. Glyndebourne. The, yes, the Monastosos yes, was was a coal shoveler. Which, yeah, which explained yeah. how why why he had yeah. a. A, a darker yeah. skin. Um, so again, uh, this is a topic we'll we'll be covering in our special pod later on this month. So uh, so make sure to subscribe to Uppercast to get the latest episodes right into your podcast player of choice. Now, earlier this month, I had the pleasure of travelling north. Not often I get to do that for Opracasco, further north than Leeds. <laughs> oh, no. Yay! All the, all the way to chilly Glasgow uh, to meet the music director of Scottish opera, Stuart Stratford. Stuart Stratford, thank you very much for joining us for this episode of OperaCast. You're very welcome. So you're entering your fifth year now in the job. Um, what do you think your biggest impact has been over that time, or what are some highlights uh, of the past kind of five years or so for you? No, it's been a great um, f- first five years in the job, although it only seems like, only seems like yesterday when I started. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased and, and proud that um, I'm continuing the focus on new music and new work, which Scottish Opera has been very... Uh, interested in in the past and uh, it's great that uh, the general director and I um, are both uh, on on the same wavelength about that which is is really fantastic. Um, That's one of the things that certainly I'm very very pleased with and the other is um, I suppose it's more in some ways sort of mundane thing but I think far more important uh, singing I know it sounds an obvious thing to say to about an opera company but um, a real focus on on the quality of singing, the quality of casting, uh, and the support that we give the singers. Um, we have an amazing coach here now who works with us, and it's it's uh, telling that all I think almost all of the artists who work with us are dying to to return because they realise that when they get here, uh, they're so well supported musically and vocally that uh, they know that they're going to give their best, and they they leave in a very very good good place and and they you know they're dying to get back and work with us again which is a, a real I think testament to our to our staff here and the way that we our sort of ethos and the way that we view singing I think how do you cope with the kind of admin size of the job I know some conductors um, absolutely hate that sort of side of being a, a music director and kind of run away from it I mean how do you kind of balance that artistic side of, of actually conducting the shows and everything that goes with actually having to kind of be a strategic part of you know managing the company Oh, I love that. I love the um, uh, the management aspect of, of the work. It's, yeah, the strategy is, is being a general um, and, and moving all your, your chess pieces around the board to, to get a, a better result, you know. And, I mean, everyone knows, you know, that every artistic decision is a financial decision, so you have to be on top of um, what the budgets can stretch to, how to be flexible with them, but you know to maintain the company's economic health, yet be artistically ambitious and and and, and achieve what you want to achieve. So it's 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 it's, it's the same thing, 
just in a different uh, in a different form you know actually waving your arms conducting making musical decisions and the planning decisions the casting decisions who conducts when I'm not available um, uh, who who in the orchestra comes in uh, what kind of chorus what size of chorus um, down to what pieces we should be doing which will uh, complement our strengths and and um, and develop us as a company. And so how does that relationship with you and Alex work, particularly that kind of, as you say, kind of bartering over programming with the business head and the artistic head? Um, how does that kind of relationship work between the two of you? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard horror stories in, you know, from various companies about the, the, the intendant and, and the music director um, coming to blows and, and toys out of prams, resignations about... Um, what they feel. I think we, we just talk it through um, and make our positions so clear that it, it just becomes obvious that the, the, the way to go is um, there is always, it seems to me, and, and certainly in my time here, there's always a, a third way or a way that can um, amalgamate both positions and, and be true and faithful to both, to both camps. And do you kind of feel that you can be kind of fully kind of satisfied as, as a conductor, say, given that obviously you do a lot of work here, but there's also the, the business and managing side. Mm-hmm. You probably can't take on as many other engagements as, as you might like to. There's only 365 days in the year. Do you kind of feel as though having a position like this, you can be kind of fully satisfied artistically, I suppose? Absolutely. Oh, it's, it's just yesterday when I was um, watching a, a rehearsal of Nixon in China, which we're rehearsing at the moment, which I'm not conducting. It gives me actually probably more pleasure, you know, um, when I'm actually not in the room, you know, waving my arms to see it. It's it, 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 in a, such a uh, exciting state with a wonderful um, Portuguese conductor, Joana Carneiro, coming in, who's a, a fantastic John Adams specialist, I suppose, and having her energy and insight. Uh, and to see the casting um, re- revealed in all its all its strengths, it's it's so exciting when when when, when you see that and and other people really r- running with it. it that's it gives me just as much pressure. And it's uh, yeah, it makes me very proud of, of what we do here. And you're good at sitting in the back in the dark and not you know. Sort no, of terrible. <laughs> I can die to sort of jump. Out. No, yes, yes, yes. And you know, and be and sort of be a cheerleader half the time. Actually, was it yesterday? I was I was dying to sort of shout go yeah when you know Mark LeBrock playing um, the chairman Mao was floating a top B flat into pianissimo I wanted to sort of shout out yes and um, but you know they're having a lot of fun and it's I'm sort of sad that I'm not actually uh, waving my arms there but I can't do everything I've just come off a, a back of a very very busy period with back-to-back productions and I've got another one coming up in a, a few weeks so I need I need time off and I've got a family, so they need to see me. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> um, and how do you go about, I suppose, kind of choosing different conductors for the company, matching conductors with, with projects? I'm interested in that kind of planning process. How does all of those kind of conversations and whatnot come about and work, and, and how long are you kind of planning these things for? Yeah, it's, it's generally um, two, three, possibly up to four years, something like that. Uh, we have um, certainly regular conductors who work with us, but um, in this case, it, it was clearly off when I realised I wouldn't be able to do the Nixon China, for example, myself. I thought, well, who's the best person that we can get? And it was I was delighted when 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 she um, she accepted. You know, it's a work that 
Um, she's not done before, actually. She's done, I think, most of the other um, operas uh, of John Adams, but this is the one that's missing from her. And she was, I think she'd heard about our company and the way we work as well, and was uh, really prepared to, to, to come and, and uh, be part of our team, which is a delight. Now, you're from Preston originally. That's right. Do you ever kind of feel as though you're missing a joke, not being from Scotland? You know, or do you feel you're properly embedded now in the... Well, I won't, I won't try my Scottish accent. <laughs> I'm sure people would love to hear that. Mm. Yeah, but my, funnily enough, my mum is, um, my mum's Scottish. She was born in Clydebank, but uh, she, she moved out um, uh, when the Clydebank got bombed during the war. Um, so she never lived there very long, until she was about seven, I think. Um, but yeah, I am half Scottish, and uh, no, I feel very strongly. It's a wonderful place. It's uh, and it's an international um, city, Glasgow. It's uh, it's a European country. I won't, go, I won't get into the politics, but no, it, it's it's a great place to be, uh, Glasgow and Scotland. And I feel absolutely at home here. Now we mentioned before about that broad range of repertoire, the enjoyment of being able to kind of pick and choose what it is you'd like to do. Um, Scottish Opera has an, an amazingly wide output. The touring productions, the pop-up operas, the operas for young audiences, you know, it's a real exciting mix of programming for a real range of audiences. How do these kind of smaller projects come about and how much are you, are you involved in things like the pop-up operas, um, Amadeus and the Bard, in kind of putting these projects together, choosing them, or is, is there kind of a much wider, I suppose, kind of team that you um, either delegate or kind of let loose on, <laughs> on their own projects? Well, we've got a wonderful uh, education team. Uh, Scottish Opera has the uh, oldest education department in Europe. I think, in the, I think possibly, maybe in the, in the world, but we'll have to check that fact. Um, Jane Davidson uh, runs it, and she's remarkable in, in her um, uh, the kind of projects that she, she gets off the ground and, and the level they reach. It really is, as you say, little pop-up operas which, which tour in a, a trailer to, to very, very remote regions of Scotland. Amadeus and the Bard, a, a collaboration with the, 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 um, the RCS, the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Um, and interestingly, uh, operas for tiny wee, wee ones with um, Bambino, which which went to has has been to the Met, so it's, it's very interesting that an opera for eighteen month old toddlers was was at the Met. It's 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 amazing. I mean, what does it mean to be the national opera company of of, of Scotland? What what responsibilities do you feel that kind of gives you as a company? As a national company, yeah, I think I mean the, the, the clues in the title really. We we have to be um, represented. Um, in all communities as much as possible in Scotland. Um, it's difficult because of the, you know, the geographical situation, not just the, the size, but the, the difficulty it is to travel around with the, the locks and the, uh, and the, um, the topography of, of Scotland. But um, it really is worth it. I went on a, a tour in my first year here on a, uh, a very small production of Elysia d'Amore. And, um, we went to, to Ullapool, to the, the Isle of Lewis, and uh, the reception you get there, you know, having made an effort to, to, to come there as a national company is, is, is outstanding. You know, people are hungry for, for culture, for art, and, and uh, many people living in uh, faraway places literally cannot realistically get to, to shows in, in the central, well, in Glasgow, Edinburgh, or even in the, the, 
Inverness and Aberdeen, where we, we, we go to as well with our main scale production. So to tour smaller, um, more lightweight, uh, light on their feet productions, I should say, is uh, really important. Um, that's certainly one aspect of, of a national company. And then it, it's the, the range of, of, of pieces, I think, that's really important. And uh, we're very... Um, I think we recognise the, the fact that there are many opera lovers in, in Scotland who um, are welcome, welcome the challenge of hearing new music, not just uh, modern, contemporary music which has been written recently, but, but repertoire which has perhaps um, fallen off the radar uh, a little bit. And um, I was really um, keen to introduce a, a strand to the, uh, to the organisation of operas in concert where we do uh, rarely performed um, works. And I think that's been something that's been incredibly popular. Uh, it's great for the audiences to have a chance to hear a Scottish premiere of Puccini's opera. We did uh, Le Villi, which was a Scottish premiere. Um, and many others. I mean, I can't say about the next season, but we have many Scottish premieres of, I think, four or five of uh, 19th century works, which is out incredible, really. And it, it's something we should be doing uh, uh, alongside the, the standard repertory and uh, brand new works as well. I mean, that opera and concert series where you do the, the rare repertoire is certainly something that seems to stand out and seems to be something that other companies um, have take inspiration from or sort of nick to the idea of whichever way you want to kind of put it um now these are kind of semi-staged works did you feel as though kind of artists and audiences get something different from them given that they're sort of in concert or you know do you kind of secretly wish that really they could all be done fully staged uh, of course yeah to do them fully staged is, is the ideal but in terms of resources you know the amount of rehearsal time um so we, we try and keep it as light as possible um and to have it, you know, off copy is very important. I mean, even simple, simple entrances and exits, a smattering of uh, a costume, uh, an idea of a prop, uh, and just a, a really clear talk through with the director, to, you know, so that everyone knows, you know, where their aim is, where their focus is. Uh, that's often um, all you need, um, to be honest, and, and to allow the the music to to do. Um, to do the work and it's, it's, it's fantastic to have our wonderful orchestra um, on stage of course and you get the whole sweep of um, orchestral sound that um, you possibly wouldn't get in a, in a pit so there's a sort of uh, bonus for that I think which is, which is great. Definitely the conductor talking there I think being able to see the orchestra and the Going back to this idea of being the national company, um, you mentioned that geographical remit, and I suppose the remit of repertoire as well, as you said, giving audiences yeah. lots of and many different things as possible. I mean, what do you kind of see the company's role being in, in developing artistic talent from the country? Um, and, and given that Scottish Opera is, uh, is not only the largest, but actually one of the few opera companies in the country, what, what do you kind of see your role as being in, in terms of trying to develop perhaps some of those smaller organisations that are coming through? In terms of, yeah, um, it's very important that we um, uh, look after and nurture Scottish talent. I mean, our emerging artist programme this year, all three, um, three members are from the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, uh, one, of which, one of whom is Scottish. Um, so we're always on the lookout, um, first and foremost, for emerging Scottish talent. Um, and I think that's reflected in our casting. Although we are you know, an international organisation and we, we look further abroad as well. So it's, sort of, it's Scotland being um, uh, centred and, and 
nurtured within a, a European international context, I think, if that's not too vague. Yeah, and, and you, you've spoken elsewhere about the kind of uh, increasing in co-productions. I mean, I think Nixon in China's with Madrid and Copenhagen, is it, that's I think? Right, yeah. uh, I mean, you've mentioned a little bit there, but just a little bit more about why this kind of uh, co-production or internationalism is, is so important to, to the work that you're doing here. Yeah, I mean, we're thrilled that, for example, this, this year, um, in a few months, within six months, we're going to the um, Adelaide Festival in, in Australia and then to uh, the Metropolitan Opera in New York, which is fantastic for Scottish opera. And that's come about through a different kind of uh, collaboration, not even a, a co-production with um, uh, Opera Ventures, which is a, a company set up to uh, champion um, second performances, third performances of, of new new work. So we, we started that collaboration uh, at the Edinburgh International Festival a few years ago with Greek very successfully and took that to the Brooklyn Academy in New York. Um, and then breaking the waves by the incredibly talented and uh, uh, well, actually she's not up and coming, she's, she's arrived <laughs> composer Missy Mazzoli um, was a real hit in in the states in Philadelphia when it when it premiered two years ago, and we secured the European premiere, both Scottish Opera and Opera Ventures as a as a joint as a joint venture, I suppose. And um, yeah, we're taking that to the Adelaide Festival and and with a, a co-production with the the Met using our cast uh, chorus. Um, and uh, their fantastic orchestra and music director. So it's a, a, a and for them, it's a, it's the first time they will have, I think, come out of the the main opera house at the Met, and they're going to the Brooklyn Academy. It's, uh, so it's wonderful for the, for the Metropolitan Opera, I think, to to be seen to be doing something different. And again, give us a kind of peek into how something so you mentioned about going to Adelaide and the relationship with the Met I mean how do those sorts of things come about do you just pick up the phone and say hey you know thinking about doing this I mean how does that kind of whole process work especially as you say kind of certainly logistical things to kind of think about how does how does something like that happen I mean the, the truth with that was um, John Berry who, who runs the um, opera ventures um, I remember him from English National Opera when he was there and I was conducting there I've always been uh, in close contact with him and we've always got on very well and then um, I think when he, he started his company we had a, a very quick conversation and it, it became clear that um, with my new role at Scottish Opera we could found a new kind of way uh, of, of working which would be incredibly beneficial to both of us um, brilliant value for money for, for Scottish Opera uh, and achieving the artistic ambitions that I'm very, very keen on. Scottish um, turnover is, is less than Upper North, it's less than Welsh, it's yeah. less than half of ENOs. Um, yeah. Do you ever kind of feel that Scottish is is kind of forced to kind of be a bit of a, a poor relation, even though, you, as you said, you've got such an amazingly wide geographical remit? Do you ever kind of look down south and go... Well, yeah, that's very that's true, yeah. I mean, yes we get less but what I think we we just concentrate on what we have and to do get them absolutely to to wring the most out of it in terms of value I mean of course we you know it wouldn't it be lovely if we could have you know x million more to be in, in line with um, our sister companies but um, 
that seems unlikely in, in the certainly foreseeable future. So we're just constantly um, uh, making sure that we, we balance our books and we get the best value for money uh, while still you know, trying to increase uh, our ambition. And certainly things seem to have come a long way over the past few years with kind of Scottish looking from the outside at least on a, on a really kind of strong footing going, going forward. What might the next ambition be? for the company, you know, what, what might the next step in your kind of, you know, leadership be? Where would you like to kind of go next? Well, I'm, I'm very pleased with the direction it's going. I, and those, I mean, the two, um, uh, the th- well, three things, I suppose. Yeah, the, the rarity of the operas is a great thing. There's the, the still the, the, the concentration on new work and uh, just the level of singing and casting. I think if we can keep to those... Um, basic principles I think in some ways that the rest looks after itself if we can keep true to those foundations I think um, yeah we'll we'll do okay going forward and do you think there's something that makes Scottish stand out from your peers is there something that Scottish does or or has that you think this is really kind of unique to our company I think we as I said before we look after people really well they enjoy being here Uh, the pastoral care we have a lot of fun uh, we take the work very, very seriously, and um, I think people really enjoy singing with us, and and they recognise the value of our of, of the of the vocal work we do. So let's look at what we've got coming up. Um, you've got Nixon in China first off, and then Midsummer Night's Dream, which which you're conducting. Um, tell us a little bit about Dream in, in particular, about this production that's that's coming up in the spring. Yeah, Midsummer Night's Dream is a piece oh, I absolutely adore. It's uh, it's remarkable. And uh, I've got an added bonus, I think, um, uh, when, if you come to see it. Um, I think as many people would, are aware that Britain didn't set the first scene from the play. He started it straight away into the woods. So the whole um, jeopardy of uh, Hermia being put to death if she, if she marries the wrong, the, the, the wrong boy doesn't quite... Ha- um, happen in the way as it is in, 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 in the Shakespeare play. So what we decided to do was have a, a, a sort of prequel opera, and it's called Hermia's Nightmare, which will be about 20 minutes long in the foyer, um, which will uh, ostensibly set the first scene uh, that, that's missing from, from the, the Britain opera. Uh, that will be set, obviously not by, not by Britain, um, but I, our fantastic emerging artist composer, uh, Sam Bordoli. Uh, so it gives him a real chance to flex his um, operatic muscles and I think a, a interesting and I think sort of festival atmosphere way of, of uh, approaching listening to the piece. You know, if you don't see it, it doesn't matter, you're not going to miss anything, but if you do, it might just complete the journey and add to your... Um, enjoyment of the evening. And what's your approach when you start working on a on a on a new opera? You know, how, are you kind of one for kind of delving through as many recordings as possible, or do you try and kind of shut yourself away? I mean, how do you, as a conductor, kind of approach a work for the first time? Always the same way, really. I, I play it at the piano. That's always the 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 standard way for as long as I can. <laughs> if you've got a very short time to, to to learn it, you know, that may only be a matter of a handful of weeks but if not as, as much as you can the piano singing it through yourself um, badly in my case but I'm um, sure we'd love to hear one of these oh, recordings the, uh, yes I think I'll save that for the next one um, that's always the, always, the, always the way working with the text working with uh, with the language 
singing it yourself, playing it yourself, and then when you come to look at the score, it all becomes uh, the full score. It becomes uh, obviously the, the, the decisions that you've already been forming be happen very quickly. Um, and then, yeah, sure, then you can listen to a recording. But it's, all, it's always that way around with me. I'm sure it's this, uh, very similar for many conductors as well. That seems to be the way to do it. So Dominic Hill is directing the production, who's got a bit of a niche in directing Shakespeare operas. And again, kind of thinking, generally speaking, how do you see that relationship between director and, and conductor and how much interest do you take in the, the stage action? How do you like to kind of have that relationship work? Well, they're just two aspects of the of, of, of the same job, really. You know, his job is all is ultimately the placing of the singers on the on, on the on the stage, um, and mine is how they um, deliver the lines. But there's a huge crossover, of course. So, you know, we're just approaching the same thing, uh, the result about what it looks like and what it sounds like, and we approach it from two. Um, different viewpoints, but and all the time there's an incredible crossover about, especially in, in Shakespeare. You know, what does this line mean? You know, what are the implications of it? You know, what what's the through line for the um, for the character, and how does that happen in the music? What what clues are given in the music, and that might um, I might give a musical note which sets him off uh, and go, oh, that's right, and that. That that, that 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 those uh, vigorous semiquavers, maybe that's it's more than anxiety; it's real trepidation. Or actually, but maybe we should play against that. So there's there's uh, there's it's always fascinating and and brilliant to collaborate with with uh, a really uh, the director who's on the top of his game. Um, and again, you're in the envious of position, I suppose, of being able to choose a lot of the directors that not only work with Scottish, but they work with you personally as uh, as well. Um, again, what are you looking for there? Is it very much looking for that personal connection, or, or is that something you sort of try and put aside if you think a director is absolutely right for a for work? How much are you look, kind of looking for the the chemistry as as much as you think they might be right for a, a project? Yeah, I think I think the chemistry is very important. Um, I don't think I've often worked um, with a director who have I've, I've taken up a real dislike to, um, or, or I certainly wouldn't admit to it <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the podcast. Um, uh, no, I've, I've always, and it's, it's so important to get on that even if you are, if there are, be, there are times, of course, you have strong disagreements, but they're, they're always res respectful, I think, and, and you can see another point of view, even if you strongly disagree with it. And it's your job to, to fight the corner of, of, of the music. Um, and to make that work, and to to convince, to cajole, yes, speak speak up for the composer. I think that's that's the most always the most important thing, which comes first. And again, you, you mentioned earlier about your approach to conducting a work for the first time. Is that quite different? Something like the Britain, where obviously uh, Benjamin Britten isn't with us anymore, but there's there's so much. Uh, information about the, the first productions, the recordings, what what Britain wanted, all of those sorts of things, as compared to, as you say, kind of going back to the the Puccini or, Mo or Mozart or whatnot, where there's there's much less direct um, engagement with kind of what the composer wants. Or even if you're looking at a, a contemporary work where the mm. composer might be sitting in the room as you're waving the baton around. I mean, is there mm. is there kind of a different way that you kind of think about uh, approaching those those works, given kind of uh, the added knowledge of what what the composer might be kind of wanting or expecting. Yeah, it's, it's, that's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, I mean, if Mozart, you know, heard his own performances now, even, you know, some of the most celebrated, would he be, would he recognise them? 
Well, I don't know. It's a very, it's a very interesting question. Would, would Wagner, would Puccini? Uh, in many ways, they would. I mean, but in, in some ways, you know, even the, the the performance practice and reception will always change, and and the way we do, you know, Mozart in fifty years' time will be very different to 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 what it is um, now. I think. Um, it's interesting, even with John Adams, the, the, the piece um, we just started to work on now, it was revolutionary um, uh, at its time when it, when it was first performed, 1987, I think, um, um, because of, of the fact that it had enhanced sound. So all the, the principles were radio mic'd, uh, the orchestra was uh, amplified and, and, and supported. So you had a situation where, ideally, um, the... Um, the result was just a gently supported, enhanced version of, of, the, of, of the acoustic situation. Um, we're trialling a system now, um, a DMB uh, en scène, I think it's called, um, a, a new technology where each radio mic is, is GPSed into a, a computer matrix and is passed onto the, the surround sound in the theatre. So the exact depth and position, and not just a, a left and right panning, is is um, a, a applied to each specific um, movement uh, of, of the soloist. So the enhancement is um, it's not as John Adams intended, but it's far far superior. Well, we hope. I think it's the first time that any any I think it's the first UK opera company to use um uh, this new technology, and I think even in Europe as well. So we hope that it's, it's even better. So that's always a long-winded way to answer your question. Performance practice, yeah, there are many aspects which are will always be different. But I'll be, I, I wonder if he can if he can come and see it, um, the composer John Adams, and hopefully he'll think, oh, oh, wow, this is this is even better than I I thought of in in my um, vision for the enhanced sound. So. Yeah, it's very interesting. It is very interesting to think, as you say, something like John Adams, which we think was being incredibly contemporary, but actually already 33 years on, you're mm. finding new ways to mm-hmm. to kind of do it and, yeah. and, and present it. Um, you obviously have, I say, kind of a, a lot of different repertoire you do with the company. The Opera and Concert Series enables you to dig out some things that um, you might have a personal, a personal interest in. Um, if there might be one opera that you'd like to get your hands on, either here or elsewhere, um, what would that be? It's the question we ask everyone. If there's still something that you've got in your mind's eye that you'd like to you'd like to do. Oh, there's so there's so much. Oh, you put me on the spot. Oh, to, oh. There's so many, so many. The Ring. <laughs> I can't say that though, but it's, it's quite a quite a large undertaking. But no, that, I'd I'd love to have. You'd quite like to get your hands yeah, on a Ring cycle. Yeah, yeah eventually. Just to kind of end, just kind of thinking about, I suppose, your journey kind of starting off in, in Preston. I think you, you kind of uh, were a, a kind of a singer in a, in a choir and whatnot. That's kind of got you got there and been, you kind of studied clarinet, I think, That's was, right, was your yeah. first instrument. How did that sort of going into conducting come about? And how do you think that that orchestral background has either helped or, or not helped kind of how you approach the, the conducting, particularly with the orchestra? Yeah, as a young boy, I was very keen on the clarinet, and I wanted to be a clarinetist. I think up until the age of um, eighteen, when I went to university, uh, playing in the National Youth Orchestra was a really uh, wonderful experience. I think it was then which I really—it was orchestral music or, or music which was surrounded by an orchestra—which really got me excited. 
Um, uh, yes, and, and at university there were opportunities to conduct, uh, and I did so, and uh, I was encouraged by my, my friends and peers to, to take it seriously. And um, then I went to St. Petersburg um, to study conducting for three years with the great Ilya Musin, who's uh, taught many of the great conductors of the last, well, of, of the last 50, 60, 70 years. He was 92 when I, when I arrived there, so he was... Um, legend in, in, in teaching conducting and it was there I got really interested in opera as well we had um, access to the Marinsky theatre uh, to see rehearsals and, and, and performances and it was uh, uh, such a pleasure seeing such a vibrant company at the time and um, uh, doing amazing work so um, yeah that got me hooked on opera really. And for young conductors coming through today I mean what what would you kind of suggest for them outside of the you know studying at conservatoires and going to see things, you know, whatnot. Is there kind of something that you feel as though um, there's something that perhaps some conductors are missing, perhaps, in terms of how they, they come through? Oh, I've, there's a, a lot of very talented uh, young conductors around. Um, there's no rush. I think that's the, uh, the, the important thing. I know we, you, one has to earn a living, but uh, conducting is a, an art where you, you do genuinely get better every year and there's no tail off really um, and that's through knowledge experience uh, learning the repertoire and learning how to rehearse I think uh, so and people sometimes just flower in their 50s you know you, you don't there's a maybe a, 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 a direction where you in, in young conductors where they really want to make it in the you know mid 20s early 20s there's plenty of time, so there's, there's, there's time. Do you think the industry allows that time? There seems to be a bit of a... There's always the interest in the, in, the, in the new thing or the young conductor or whatnot, you know. Do you think actually we're, we are in an industry that will allow people to take that time? I hope so, I hope so. I think the good thing about um, opera companies, um, all opera companies, not just ours, of course, um, you need... Uh, a, quite a large staff, you need assistant conductors, you very often need second pianists who are also interested in conducting, so there is real opportunity in an opera company for, for young conductors to, to watch and grow and to be involved in a, in a safe environment, I think, um, more so than in the symphonic world, I think, really, there's not the same opportunities um, of being an assistant uh, in that sense, I think it's a real, which is why uh, being a conductor in general, the, the, the tried and tested method is in starting in an opera company because of the, the, the depth of, um, of music and the opportunities you get to, to really engage with it. I think that's a really a great thing for a young conductor to be involved in, in, in opera. And just before we leave, uh, hints or inklings you can give us as to what might be coming for Scottish in 2021? Scottish premieres. Scottish premieres. <laughs> Not necessarily uh, new pieces as well. You'd be very surprised at some of them. Um, no, a very interesting season we've got um, with some, yes, operas in concert. There'll be, a, uh, I think, a Russian theme to all of them uh, with lots of uh, Pushkin's influence um, on uh, many of them. Uh, yeah, you'll have to... Watch this space. Well, we'll delve the archives for, for Pushkin premieres for Scotland. 
there's, there's probably a lot of them. There's probably a, there's a lot of Pushkin <laughs> operas out there. Yeah. Uh, Stuart Strafford, thank you so much for giving over your time and, and, and all the best for the, the upcoming season. Thank you, real pleasure. Thank you. So thank you to Stuart and Scottish Opera. Nixon in China opens on the 18th of February and A Midsummer Night's Dream on the 31st of March. And Helen, so we mentioned in the interview that Stuart is from Preston um, yeah. and you work a lot with Preston Opera and I understand yeah. he is the president. He is the president. He, he, we were delighted that he accepted the position and actually he came, came along to see Macbeth. And uh, he was so helpful because I was, I think it was the second night and uh, we, had a, we had a great chat. I told him about how much time I had with the orchestra and I can't repeat what his response was when he, when he realised how little time I had to get the orchestra in. And the fact that, you know, you, we had just uh, one dress and then it's on. Um, and he, he, his response was great, but he was, he couldn't do enough. He's like, oh, is there anything I can do to help you? And he, and he literally meant anything. And then the best bit was there, was a, there happened to be a pub around the corner um, from where we were. And obviously the orchestra there and some of the singers who um, were, um, you know, not all of them came because they were looking after the voices. But, but we were in the pub, basically Stuart was buying drinks. We had a great chat. We swapped a lot of notes about his time in the opera. Uh, but he was so interested and had loads of ideas. But, um, yeah, we, we had a good laugh about some of the... Uh, swapping stories and some things are the same and some things are different so it was it was great <laughs> and those stories will remain in the pub in, in the pub in Preston <laughs> yeah. yeah but it was a really nice guy and obviously straight away the fact that he was he, he could he just offered to buy the whole orchestra drink so they, they were very pleased yeah totally now then, the Royal Opera House has come under great fire from opera luminaries including Louise Alder, Sarah Connolly and Joyce DiDonato for supporting the British Council's Britain is Great campaign, complaining that the branding of red, white and blue flags was grossly insensitive with overtones of Brexit tub thumpery, my words. Um, now, Ben, I'm sure that you mm. have opinions. Uh, you can well, kick yeah. off and we well, may can argue. I just Can I oh, be dead can. cheeky and just get in first? I have to say, when I first saw the tweet... My first thought was that it was a spoof tweet. Yeah. Literally. I don't know what... Yeah, it sounds like you sound... I will let you take over now, Ben, but well, that yeah, was that... my reaction. It's This is a spoof take. Uh, yeah, I could it not... It had the charm and grace of Alan Partridge, didn't it? It was, it was really sort of awkwardly done. It had the branding of, like, the Tesco value record. <laughs> and it just sort of, like... <laughs> on the brink of jingoism and, and it was just awful and this right this is an international house it's absolutely <laughs> reliant on talent from across the world it's, absolutely across the world. it's so international does work mm. usually does music by <laughs> other nationalities composers and it goes oh yeah we're celebrating all that's great about britain it's it was i reckon they've sort of like kidnapped the children of the management some it, sort of like Brexit conspiracy. Well, it was a, it was the second of January, which yeah. which I think a lot of people still hold it. The other thing that I did I did read through um, some of the tweets uh, below, and there's a great bit where um, someone kind of said, "Well, it's nothing new. It started in 2012." I was like, I was like, okay, I kind of get that, but the timing seems <laughs> awfully awfully interesting. Um, and, and interestingly, I've, there's not been anything re- retweeted since the storm. They got the message, didn't they? Now, I do find the timing a little insensitive, and I do find the branding a little over the top. But maybe this is because I've had 
dealings with the Britain and Great campaign before oh, in, right. in a different time, right. uh, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I don't really have a problem with this. What, what it's supposed to be doing, yes, maybe it's a bit over the top, but what it does is it's, it's, it's promoting... British culture and British institutions internationally. It's 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 saying that here's a great place to kind of come and see things and travel and tourism. Um, it's about promoting royal opera tours overseas, so they often go to Japan and other countries. It's about promoting it to you know students and, and, and artists. And I think, may, I think, maybe it's insensitive, but the I, that's not what it looked no, like. No, I, I'm going I'm to say I think you've been super nice I, I, because I, I, it didn't. If, as, we, as, if we saw this pre June 2016, we would think. Differently, I agree. It's a bit, it's a bit insensitive, and it's a bit over the top. But overall, are bit. we just a bit, are we a bit over the top with this? We're all hypersensitive though, because we're in this, we're in an era, we're sort of like in this era of rising nationalism. I think of sort of like we're all very touchy about these sort of things. We're, there is a political heightened sensitivity mm. around the idea of Britishness, around what constitutes being being patriotic. What's what's nationalistic, what's jingoistic, what's acceptable pride in the nation. Mm. So I think we are prone to react differently now. And, and there's no way that Royal Opera is oblivious to that. And I think they've just ploughed in headlong and trashed it. Mm. And I think what, what I found particularly interesting was that, yes, I can. I was expecting Sarah Connolly to say something because she's very strong yeah. in these matters, yeah. but to have people like Joyce Donato come in, who obviously yeah. isn't, isn't British, British. Yeah. It, was, it was interesting, and she was comparing it saying that, you know, if this was done in the US, you know, you can imagine the, the massive backlash that something like this with red, white, yeah. and what mm. do they have? Stars. Stars, Stars are stripes. Are stripes. <laughs> that, that would be it, yeah. I can absolutely imagine Trump doing something like that. It was, it had that... Need fear. we say more? It had that nastily... <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Um, now, uh, alongside this, further plans have been announced for the government's festival of Brexit. Um, and again, uh, surprisingly, people have not been jumping on board to take part. The festival of Brexit is a £120 million uh, event that's supposed to celebrate everything um, British about Britain. Um, now, again, Helen, I would say that the branding of the festival of Brexit is a bit distasteful. Do you know... But... Right, go on. Is... Is opera doing itself any favours by kind of essentially looking down upon half the population? It's not, it's not the point of art that we sort of try and understand and, and reach out to, to to people rather than, you know, tensions are high, Ben, you are quite right, but mm -hmm. rather, but, but but my, rather than my, alienating half of the country. But, that's, but I think that's where you need a really slick marketing campaign that is going to steer away to actually avoid creating more controversy would be my would be my view if I was paying people to do marketing for me. You know, I would, you know, if you're going to play the politics and try and find and reunite the country, um, there, there are probably easier ways to do it. I'm not sure art has ever, as great works of art, do they, they bring people together or do they promote a viewpoint? Verdi wanted to unify yeah, Italy. that's a good that's example. that's quite clear from his work. Mozart, mm. in The Marriage of Figaro, is looking for the equality of the classes. Yeah, That's enlightenment, yeah. Yeah, these mm. aren't reconciliatory works. They're works that promote an idea. And I think as artists, our job is to sort of like perhaps suggest and it's got to be a personal expression because that's what art is. Well, what, an ex yeah. expression of how we think it should be. Well, what I think is quite interesting, I did a concert just before Christmas that had a... I'm just going to talk orchestras really, sorry for a minute. Um, mm -hmm. Eroica, Peterloo... Shostakovich 5, 
Finlandia, and all those those all those works of art were, yeah. were they were all written with a specific piece of mind. So, I guess what I'm saying, what will be interesting, I think we're too we're too close to it. It will be interesting to see what the works of art are. But for me, works of art that are responses will be that composer, that that groups, that collaborations response to events, and they will come through. But this, you know, that's a separate issue to me about the marketing of of any statements. Yeah, or... I, I just think I think you know this this particularly distasteful festival aside, that the, the whole sort of thing that you know opera and you know the arts in general are sort of so dismissive of of half the country. For me, I I, I don't have the answers, but I just think this we I, have to find. I think we have to find a way. I get. That... I guess. I mean, I know there will be there will be splits, but I think the basic economics, and I know Ben could probably speak to this, is that I've seen already way way before since the referendum. Basically, adverts for chorus members in Europe being yeah. you you need to make sure you're going to be able to work here beyond this date. Also, just from being really boring and businessy and practicalities. If you're an artist crossing all the borders, say you're in Belgium, you're going to try and cross over and you've got get equipment, all that equipment's going to have to be labelled to import and export it. it it's just, going to, from, from their point of view, you're just seeing it as it's going to end up being more work, which costs more money, which is going to take more money away from producing the music. Yeah, and if you're talk. a company in Europe, why don't you just book some French people from, instead? Exactly, because no issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm fascinated to see what happens with this festival of Brexit and who takes and who takes part. And I say, hopefully, we can all find a way to get along. Yeah, but um, it's like but... Brexit is the most divisive thing in my lifetime. Yeah. Why would you have a festival? We don't have the festival of conservative election victory for the whole nation <laughs> to join in on, do we? But it's every bit as divisive. We have a festival. It's like Man United winning the league and yeah. saying, right, let's have a festival. Liverpool, you're joining in. That's, that's not Gosh. how it works, is it? We'll see. I'm, I'm intrigued to see what happens with, with, with the whole jamboree. Um, we've retweeted all these things, but we'll put them out again. Uh, let us know what you think. Info at operacast.co.uk. Sticking with Covent Garden very briefly, um, they've announced the world's first hyper-reality opera, which apparently is about mixing real performers with digital ones using special VR goggles. Now, I love VR, so this is right up my street. Um, undeniably, it's a bit of a gimmick, but I think there could be some really cool things that mm. you could do with opera and VR. I saw, I saw um, Beirut Stats Opera on YouTube. They've got a, a video that you can, you know, you can put your glasses on, and it puts you in the orchestra pit, and it puts you on the stage, and it puts you in a box. You know, if that technology was really good, I could see my myself uh you know rather than going to the cinema you know paying 20 quid yeah. to sit yeah. in a in a nice dress circle seat at something you know well, be able to actually have that feel as though you are actually there are either you two gamers or not I've, 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 i dabble i dabble so I, I, I mean i'm i'm not but from what i know is that that's vr's kind of the next thing coming there yeah. so i think totally and again again what's gonna be dead interesting is when you get these new technologies how is that going to change the actual thing? It's the art form itself, and what's going to happen in it. I think it's great, mm. and that is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I need, I need to try. I keep seeing VR that I need to go and try a VR. Have you had a go? No, I've not. Oh, it's you? really good. Yeah, it's really good. There's a, there's a, right. there's a, a game arcade here in. Leeds, oh, is there? Helen, right. Okay. They've got a little VR section. Right. We will go. Oh, it's great. It's really right. good. Arcade Club Leeds. Right. Yes, it is fantastic. So, it sounds a bit more... Uh, free advertising. sounds a bit different to the... Uh, what was it? The one on Bandit. Yeah. It's a little bit more yeah, high-tech yeah. than right. that. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And in our lovely, warm and cuddly story of the month, uh, again, The Guardian went behind the scenes at Casa Verdi, which is the retirement home for elderly musicians founded by Giuseppe Verdi. Um, and if you've ever seen the play or the film Quartet, mm. um, it's exactly like that. It sounds like a nice idea, but I don't know about you, Ben. I would not really want to spend my final years <laughs> trapped in a house, not only with musicians, but yeah. sopranos. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I know some my... lovely soprano, so I'm just going to get that in first so yeah, that all my soprano yeah. friends love me. I, I, I know some nice sopranos, very nice, but I don't want 40 of them in a room <laughs> until the day I die. Really, that, that's not floating my boat. They probably met those, though, by that age. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure fuck to them in a room till I die as well. Yeah, <laughs> but you've, you've still got, you've still got the mindset of a soprano, haven't you? That's the, that's the problem. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, yeah, it's a, it's a lovely idea, but I'm not sure I'd want to be surrounded by People professional musicians. Yeah, be. yeah, <laughs> all the time. But they seem to have yeah. a they seem to have a lovely time of it, and they've started bringing in uh, training musicians to kind of do concerts and to things. to benefit and... from their experience. Yeah, yeah. and right. is it wasn't it around the whole thing of finding solu- Guardians running a series about finding solutions to so-called intractable yes. problems and this idea of um, main you know keeping you know the more mature retired singer by bringing in the young people it's it's a win-win in terms of loneliness interaction social all those good things yeah which are all good things again it's, yeah. it's music as a it's music not for music isn't it it's exactly music but a social and a community need. yeah it's the it's the well i mean it's interesting thing just while we're on here so often you know and just thinking back to the conversation about opera and outreach or anything I'm all for opening everything up, but I still think we've got to sometimes remember and say the first thing, the reason we do a musical is is music, is because it's amazing and it moves us and that's that's why we're in, into it, because it yeah. does something. And sometimes it's almost, we're, we're frightened to say why. So it's lovely. And also they're probably really lucky in this house that they're getting to live there for free. Yeah, it's a bonus. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Finish off two quick questions for Helen and Ben. Uh, mm-hmm. The first one: Beethoven's twenty twenty fifth, two hundred fifty anniversary <laughs> this year. God, he's um, lost his, his way a bit. You you won't be able to escape him. But of course, he only ever wrote one opera, although he did multiple versions of Fidelio. Uh, quick question, Ben: Would you have liked to have more Beethoven operas, or is it is it quite special just just having this one? Um, I mean, he started a few of the projects, didn't he, and talked mm. to a few librettists about a few of the things, and never. Never gone. Mm. I always get the feeling that Beethoven himself wasn't particularly happy with Fidelio. In yeah. the, the amount of times he rewrote it, the amount of changes he made. Mm. Um, some some lads just rewritten Fidelio, aren't they? Um, All right. Some, I can't remember who. I was just right. about it last All week. All right. Some guys rewritten yeah. Fidelio. Right. Yeah, with, David Lang has just... Um, his yeah. Fidelio's oh, yeah, I've read about that. We're, and he's looking Prisoner at it from the, the prisoner's point of view. and Because he, yeah. he said he watched the opera and then he was kind of... The prisoners didn't really feature. Yeah. And there is yeah. issues with it. There are, there are dramatic yeah. issues. That, um, but Fidelio is one of my favourite operas mm. simply because of the quality of the music. Uh, yeah. Like, I know there's dramatic problems. I don't care. Because the, the music's music, exactly the music sublime. just amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, I suppose I'd have loved Beethoven to have written another 10. Um, but, but he didn't, so I'm super But then we might have not had some of his other amazing, like, quartets and yeah. other amazing yeah. chords. I don't think he was wasting his time, was it? No, he was quite, he was quite busy. But yeah. actually, it's always a fascinating conversa- conversation about composers who haven't written operas. I think a great one, Mendelssohn. I mean, in a way, oh. he kind of got close with Elijah, but he, he kind of uh, never got... Mendelssohn qu- wrote ten operas. 
Oh, you, you mean his early ones? I know, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I know. Was on Mendelssohn Opera. Was it? I'm going to shut up now, then. Yeah, I was thinking someone like List, who I know did write. There's the one opera that they've recently sort of rediscovered and put together of List, yeah. Or Brahms. Well, Brahms actually—he was just coming up, but he—he didn't really have any truck with it. Um, but you know, again, look, I love Brahms. One of the I love Brahms is he's written everything except opera, and it's kind of like I wish he had, but then he just wasn't Elgar. I don't oh, think he... Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? Yeah. But then if you look at the what they write, core, I'm just you know, music makers, Garantis, you know, there's so much drama. That yeah, yeah. Always, it's always interesting. Elgar's a good show. I, I like this topic of which composer would we have liked to have done an opera? I would love, yeah. Elgar's Elgar and Brahms, but I, I'm not going to talk too much about Brahms because he, he just yeah. said he was int- Yeah, again, but then... Yeah. And then he spent so much time in opera. Yeah. And also, did, and, and, you, and, you couldn't, and you can't really say, well, actually, maybe he didn't write it because he couldn't, didn't want to commit that amount of time when you look at the length of his symphonies. But yeah, yeah. Well, just look at Kanye yeah. West, just push yeah. it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Turn them on. a few times. Put it, put it on water. Yeah, I bet Kanye spent like ages, you know, in Sibelius, like writing those parts yeah, yeah. down yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, there must be a massive team. Or I'm sure he does it all himself in Sibelius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What he does is other people's music, and he's on stage when it happens. And that apparently makes it his. Right. Author. Okay. I don't understand yeah. modern music, but that's that's fine. No. Um, and then to finish, uh, so the Times Neil Fisher postulated on Twitter about potential casting for a Duchess of Sussex, the opera, which sadly mm. is hypothetical for now, but I think we can expect to see it at the fringe or maybe tete-a-tete sometime, sometime <laughs> yeah. soon. Hundreds of people launched in with their casting ideas. I've I've jotted a few down. Um, ben, did you have any kind of thoughts who you'd like to see Duchess yeah. of Sussex, the I, opera? I want David Walliams doing Camilla. It'll be absolutely <laughs> brilliant. It will be a thing of glory. That's where I'm at. Also, I thought um, basically Ed Sheeran would do a good Harry. Oh, that's, that's a good call. The opera. Yeah, yeah. Let's go outside. Oh, see, I would have done better. See, I, I, when I was thinking about this, I was struggling to think because of opera people. I should have thought more laterally. I, I went. I went out. You went lateral. I did. I mean, I'd I'd have thought and I had some more slightly more kind of serious suggestions for this opera, which isn't real. Um, I think my, my main my main contribution. I was thinking a lot about the Queen. Who would play the Queen? But I I actually think the Queen should be a what silent about role. Felicity Barber. Dame Joan. I know she's you know. Don't know. No, I, I she's think, too. Yeah, it would have I to think, be something silent. Mirroring yeah. her her mm. her uh, public persona, it should be a silent role. Maybe she has one word at yeah. the end. To a powerful yeah. word. Yeah, powerful word. Um, but no. I think Th- Thomas Allen playing Philip, I think that's got to happen. Yeah, I can see that. Duncan Rock as Harry was popular. Daniel Denise as Megan. Yeah. It's, yeah. Got, it's yeah. got to be Danny. Um, that should be all right at that. The, the, yeah. the suggestion I really, really liked on, on Twitter was for Kate Royal to play Catherine. So Kate Royal yeah. plays a royal Kate, which I thought was, <laughs> that, was great. Um, I want uh, Prince George, Justin Kim, the countertenor. Oh, right. Maybe, yes. maybe, maybe there's yeah, like yeah. a flash-forward scene where Prince George has grown up and Justin Kim. Um, and the, the one bit of casting I couldn't quite decide on was someone's got to play Piers Morgan. Oh, good. <laughs> Prince Herbal. Prince Herbal do a great Piers Morgan. Yeah, yeah Prince bring Herbal, that. I was thinking Matthew Rose maybe, which is nothing personal against Matthew Rose, but he's just a fantastic... Just pull that. He's a fantastic mm. performer, but yeah. That... But maybe again Piers Morgan, maybe that should be a, a trouser role. Well, that'd be, oh, glorious. Nine... that'd be glorious to behold. Yeah. That's anyway, good thinking. But I'm, yeah. Yeah, the main I'm one, impressed, David. That's the main yeah. one I want. Who's who's playing Piers Morgan? Yeah. If... Although I think it's important to point out at this venture how um, utterly 
um, little I could care about the whole Megan Markle <laughs> situation. I'm just, I'm just not bothered where she lives. Yeah, but when it turns into less. casting, you know, I mean, that's, that's where <laughs> yeah, things yeah, get yeah. interesting. Um, I love this topic. So if you listeners have got any ideas for operas you'd like to see, then let us know and we'll set our future panellists to submit their casts. Quick roundup of the opera that you can catch on radio, cinema and online this month. Uh, ben mentioned it just now. Uh, David Lang's Fidelio-inspired Prisoner of the State is on Radio 3, as is Gerald Finley in Death in Venice. Both of those are available on Catch Up. Uh, and the highlights of what's coming up on Radio 3, um, I've chosen Porin by the Czech composer Vatroslav Lisinski, um, which is completely new to me. And as mm. you know, I love anything a bit weird and wonderful. So Porin. P-O-R-I-N. P-O-R-I-N. Has it got any kind Orin. of check? It's got no things on it. <laughs> yeah. no. I don't know what the technical Those thing. are my language skills. No, right. thi- no things. Um, so that's going to become Radio 3. In cinema, you've got Castronovo and Jon Chaver in Bohem from the Opera House. Mm. You've also got Porgy and Bess from the Metropolitan Opera coming to your screens at the beginning of February. And on Opera Vision, alongside um, some fantastic productions of the standard repertoire, you can see some real weird and wonderful stuff from countries including Iceland, Lithuania and Germany. Talking about the weird and wonderful Helen, have you got a hidden gem for us this month? I have got a hidden gem. And so, um, as you know, when I was working on the Shakespeare project with along with the um, theatre for the festival run by Northern Opera Group in Leeds last summer, one of the great things about that was being able to do some research into, I think, what, over 300 operas in terms of trying to make our own show come together. And uh, one of the things that I just came across, I mean, this is the joys of, of the internet, was it was a Taming the Shrew by um, Giannini, but he's American, obviously, uh, with, with heritage from Italy. Um, and what what the music itself is tonal. It's really lovely to listen to. Um, the last chord's quite interesting. So, you know, just almost go to the end and listen to the last chord. But the reason I'm kind of interested in it more is I was kind of... I almost love to know why it was written because I was kind of thinking, well, in 1948, Cole Porter wrote Kiss Me Kate, which was a massive hit. So much Tame the Shrew in that. And this was written in 1953. And then four years later, you've got West Side Story. So I kind of enjoyed listening to it almost because of why it was in there. And when he was writing it, was he aware? I'd love to know, did he think about the Tame Shrew? Why would you want to write such a big show just five years after? I don't know. It was more the questions it raised... But again, it was really a bit more, it sounds a bit more operatory, so it's clearly not going with dealing with all the issues of that play. But I haven't got Elizabeth here to help me with all the play things. Just say hello to Elizabeth if she ever listens to this. Elizabeth Freestone. Um, so we won't go into that, but we had lots of discussions about that, obviously, when we were working through the show. But yeah, it's, I think, again, it just shows there's so much music that never gets an airing, and somebody put their heart and soul into that, and it deserves a listen. Thank you, Helen, and we will have a listen to it now. So here is Giannini's The Taming of the Shrew. Suffice it, I am come to keep my word. 
And to finish, it is time for the opera quiz. Oh, God. Now, I had a very exciting new concept, um, and I will thank uh, Louise Garner for her suggestion of this concept, but unfortunately, it relied on both of our panellists being in the room. Um, oh, damn, sorry. And, and sadly, ben, ben, last minute, has had to, has had to call in, so we're going to have to put that on standby. Sorry. I'm not going to give it away, but in a future month, we'll have our exciting new concept so very quickly in the space of about 10 minutes i've had to cobble together a quick yeah. quiz and um, this is a format that helen knows well i'm Ugh. going to read out the roles oh no what right can i just say Excellent. every time i come on david picks this one i'm totally rubbish at it it's like i've never done it I've ritual done it. you're going to be good at this i can see it now it's like ritual humiliation and as oh. i hear all the panelists say, it's like we come on this show and then it's like they don't know anything. Anything. <laughs> How Bring dare it, they be on this opera cast? So I can't believe you've done the same one, David. Well, I, I, I had 10 minutes to put it together. Right. I'm going to read out the roles in an right. opera. Starting I'm going to be from, rubbish at this, Ben. So starting from the smallest role to the I'll biggest role. Uh, Helen and Ben, if you think you know the opera, you shout in. If you get it wrong, you're out for the round and it passes over to the next person. It's right. best of five. So I'm going to start with the first opera, smallest role to biggest. Shout out if you know the opera. Class. Pedrillo. Selim. Oh, James Ricardo Australia. It, was that a, a weird mix of German and English? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was, in the Pasha Selim, isn't he the the benevolent king at the end of Dämfrung? Yeah, the spoken role that was Selim, Pedrillo, Osmin, Blonde, Belmonte, <laughs> Costanza, the Enfurung aus dem Sarai, or the abduction from Seraglio. <laughs> It's got a fun yeah, chorus, that, that one, actually. That's got a really fun chorus. Yeah, it's it's another one of these slightly problematic it, operas, but I think it's some of Mozart's best music. I love the yeah, music. and uh, I think English great. Touring Opera just toured it. Yeah, yeah. they have with, yeah, uh, with John with, Andrews, with John Andrews yeah. who was on the pod last year. Um, great production from Glyndebourne a couple of years ago right. as well. Next round of... Next humiliation. Round two. <laughs> the First Sailor. Uh, I'm going to just say Benjamin... Yeah, but Peter Grimes. I'm just guessing. Oh, and Dido and Aeneas. <laughs> it's Dido and Aeneas. Oh! Now, again, we should say I can't see Ben, and he is not in the studio, but I'm still going to assume he's not looking. Um, that was pretty quick, so I'll give I it in. not type that quick. That was extraordinarily <laughs> quick. That was Dido and Aeneas, first sailor spirit. <sighs> second witch, first witch. At least I said something. Sorcerer, second woman, Belinda, Aeneas, right. and Dido. That was yeah. impressive. I'm just pleased I actually said something, Ben, you see. Oh, that did well. At I the first, first person. I, I think, I, think I should get a bonus <laughs> half point yeah. for that. Yeah. David's I'm... not playing. He's not giving it. <laughs> no, I'm not playing. <laughs> I take quizzes very seriously. Uh, two down. Here's the third. Flavio. Oh, I know this, but he's gone out of my head straight away. Clotilda. <sighs> it's not Cenerentola, is it? Are they the name of the ugly sisters in Racine's Cenerentola? It's not, no. Oh! So, Helen... Keep going. I'm not going to... You, you will get this because... Uh, as with a lot of operas, the last name well, will we'll give it away. Oh, well, let's just go to that yeah. then. Polioni. Oh, I know this, Norma. Yes, it's Norma. I should know uh, that one. That's, oh, I did know. The, have you uh, I have, yeah. But you know what <laughs> I mean? Clotilde has about four lines, and most of the time she just had to play with the kids. Yeah, she was actually right, playing, right. doing elephants in our production, playing and, elephants with the kids. It's great. She was really good with them, actually. And the as kids. we know from previous uh, podcasts, Helen, you don't really care for the names of the characters. <laughs> <laughs> They're not. 
What was the first character again of that one? I was just checking the names of the, of the ugly sisters in Chenarentula. Uh, it, it's it's Clorinda and Tisk. That's it. But who, oh. who was the first Norma one? Uh, Flavio, yeah, who is uh, Polyone's sidekick, and he has about six lines. Words. So yeah. to Helen, yeah. they they don't exist. Well, they did. <laughs> I did have to cue really in. I did have to cue in. But it was just at that point I had the name of the character down just because I really wanted to make sure I, you know, didn't get it wrong. <laughs> uh, Too much information. No one's ever going to book me now. <laughs> opera number four, and this one is a really, I think it's really quite straightforward. On a very small cast of characters, so opera number right. four. Gianetta. Belpore. Um, the Elixir. Elixir that Elixir loved on Zeta. The Elixir of Love. Just five characters in that. Ginetta Belcore, Dulcamara, Adina and Nemorino. See, that sounds like that. Um, Dulcamara, isn't there some sort of bizarre um, <laughs> battle <Ice cream>. thing? <laughs> <laughs> it's a dodgy Drug. doctor that sells it's... the fake love potion, isn't it? <laughs> I have no idea I think we're quite a good combo it. on this, by the way. <laughs> Uh, so congratulations, Ben. That's a, that's a three-one well victory. Well done, Ben. I'll, I'll quickly, totally I'll quickly go through what would have been the tiebreaker, right. which is a messenger, voice of the high priestess. Oh, um, Aida. No. Aida. Yeah. Oh, oh Rampris, see. Radames, Amneris, of Egypt, and Aida. Uh, congratulations, uh, Ben. Well done, but well done to both of you um, for the quiz there. And one day we'll get to play the exciting new quiz format, which I cannot wait for. I also I'm, I'm suggested. Now, yeah. I, yeah. I also suggested that you know one time it could be Revenge of the Panelists. Were David <laughs> yeah. subjected to a quiz, but he wasn't going for that. You see, I have David hold of the iPad. So. In Mendelssohn operas. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't believe that. Thank you, listeners. Uh, thank you very much to uh, Helen for joining us this month. It's been a pleasure. It's always I really enjoy chatting. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, Ben, as well. I think well, we're, likewise, um, you, madam. I, um, I do enjoy doing these. I know, and also we, we didn't even really do the whole Lancashire Yorkshire thing, so I'm quite no, impressed no. with myself. And thanks for being courteous. <laughs> No, not at all. Thank you. <laughs> thank you to Ben. Uh, thank you to Chapel FM, as always. Uh, do make sure to subscribe to OperaCast. We've got another episode coming up this month all about opera and diversity. Next month on the main pod, we'll be interviewing Elizabeth Llewellyn. We've got some fantastic guests popping up over the next few months. Um, as well, next month, we'll have a special episode going behind the scenes at a day at the Royal Opera House. So again, do make sure to subscribe to OperaCast to get those episodes direct to your podcast player of choice every month. Thank you very much for listening and until soon, goodbye. Marvellous. That was fun. Yeah, it was. It was good, that one. I liked that. Yeah. I, I, think, I think we quite work well on the banter side. We can do banter. I can yeah. bring that to the party. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right.